Welcome to Talking Pictures. My name is Christian Gensel. I'm a filmmaker and film journalist from Salzburg, Austria. Talking Pictures is an interview series in which I talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From cult movie directors to character actors, from seasoned veterans to brilliant newcomers, from celebrated artists to filmmakers who haven't received the recognition they deserve, these folks have lots of fascinating stories to tell. Today's guest is screenwriter Charlie Haas, best known for his work with cult filmmaker Joe Dante. Our conversation focuses on the movie Matinee, released in 1993, a love letter to the horror films of the 50s and 60s set during the Cuban Missile Crisis. John Goodman plays Lawrence Woolsey, a producer not unlike William Castle, who comes to Key West, Florida to promote his new monster movie Mand, Half Man, Half Ant, All Terror. The story is told from the perspective of a young boy who loves horror cinema and who befriends the eccentric producer while out in the real world, the United States and the Soviet Union come close to a full-scale nuclear war during the October crisis of 1962. In our interview, Charlie talks about his own movie-going experiences and his memories of the Cold War, about working with a film scholar like Joe Dante, about the development of Matinee and the inspiration behind the Lawrence Woolsey character. We also talked about some of Charlie's other work, including the teen rebellion drama Over the Edge, the sci-fi cult classic Tron, Joe Dante's anarchic sequel Gremlins 2, their TV movie Runaway Daughters, and an exciting project they worked on which unfortunately didn't come to fruition. The interview was conducted in connection with the German-language podcast Lichtspielplatz, where we produced an entire episode on Matinee. So if you speak German, check out our Lichtspielplatz episode number 43 at www.lichtspiel Platz.at. If you enjoy my conversation with Charlie Haas, make sure to check out our other interviews at TalkingPicturesPodcast.com and follow us on Facebook, Twitter and the podcast platform of your choice. So here's Talking Pictures with Charlie Haas. Matinee is very much a, a movie about going to the movies, the love of going to the movies. So I was wondering which movie-going experiences you remember from your youth. Oh, wow. When I was a kid, uh, there was very little to do where I grew up. Uh, it was a suburban town with uh, very few entertainments, but there was a movie theater that I could walk to, and I could walk there on a Saturday afternoon and go and see, oh gosh, Rodin, you know, the, the Japanese monster movie, or I'd see The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, or something, you know, stuff that was coming mm -hmm. out at that time, this sort of uh, late fifties, early sixties. And, um, yeah, it was wonderful. I mean, you, you know, and, and if they had, if they had like an Elvis movie or something, they might have a couple of, um, of live rock and roll bands before the show, you know, before the movie. Mm -hmm. And that was, and, uh, yeah, I loved going. I mean, we went to, as a family, we went to drive-in movies and we would go see, you know, you know, the, the kind of thing we made fun of with the Disney parody and matinee, but, um, <laughs> Uh, you know, but on my own, I would go see westerns and monster movies and stuff. And, and as I say, all those pictures, it was great. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, movie going was was much more of an of an event back then. Um, I think. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah, I mean, there would be. Uh, I remember that if there was uh, again, this very much uh, turns up in matinee when I think about it. But if there was a monster movie out. Uh, I, I, I'm trying to remember exactly what, you know, what was out at that time, but, you know, the blob and the crawling eye and Rodan and all this stuff. And everybody would be talking at school at recess about, well, how scary is it? And can I go see this one? And, you know, tell me what happens in it. And did you have your eyes closed? Everybody was, 
very very energized by horror movies at that age mm -hmm. yeah, i think the teenage years um are that age where you are very um you sort of you're very interested in that sort of experience uh, and you sort of feel that experience very strongly sort of testing yeah. yourself in a way for sure and actually you know thinking a few years ahead of that um, by the time i'm in high school uh I, you know by then i'm i'm I, we've moved and i'm living near a college campus and so i'm going to see uh art movies all the time and i'm going to see uh you know Godard or, you know, Robert Frank or something like that with that same kind of excitement. It's like, here's this connection to the world that I want to be in. Mm -hmm. um, very important to me when I was, I don't know, you know, 16 or something. Mm -hmm. um, do you still go to the movies? Uh, <laughs> not lately. But yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. Let's, let's, yeah. let's ignore the pandemic for a moment. Yeah, this, in, in general. Pandemic aside, we still do. And we, you know, we, we, we go to commercial theaters. We also go, we're in Oakland and uh, so we're right near Berkeley and in Berkeley, you know, they have a university art museum that has Pacific Film Archive, which is an excellent, uh, you know, screening series. Mm -hmm. And we go see a lot of, you know, French pictures and whatever there. But, um, and, you know, and, and sadly, our movie going has been cut down a little bit because being in the Writers Guild, I get DVD screeners of, of stuff mm -hmm. for award season. And we end up watching a lot of stuff that way. So we get lazy about going out. But, mm. uh, but yeah, I love going to the movies. Mm. Yeah, I guess that's true for most people that just because everything is so available and it's so convenient to watch it at home. Um, yeah, it, well, it's, it's the screeners that they, that they send and it's also streaming, you know, so. Mm. But, but it's, it's great to get out. We have um, a wonderful, very old fashioned, big old movie palace uh, mm -hmm. really right down the hill from us here. And um, it's, it's really fun to have the Wurlitzer organ and the whole thing. It's great. to mm -hmm. go there. Wow. That sounds great. Yeah. Um, so which of those movies that you, that you saw um, back then, which of those were an inspiration for the movie in matinee for Mant? Oh, you know, um, good question. I, uh, you know, because you'd see Godzilla movies and stuff mm -hmm. like that. Um, but I think that that really, uh, you know, the, the thing about working with Joe Dante uh, and Mike Finnell, his producing partner at the time, uh, those guys are two of the world's great uh, movie buffs uh, in a way that I never was. I mean, I, I'm just not as steeped in, in the movies. I, very few people are as steeped <laughs> in the movies as those guys. Uh, and, you know, and, and just as an aside, I mean, working in LA when I did, uh, those guys, and I worked with um, Tim Hunter and Jonathan Kaplan when we did Over the Edge. I mean, these guys were, were, were not Hollywood scene makers. They were just very much... Uh, you know, serious uh, movie scholars. And I really love that about working with them. So, you know, Mant came, well, Mant, first of all, you know, originated as part of the movie before I came onto it, because there were a couple of writers who, you know, who did earlier drafts of it. So that idea was there. Uh, and, um, but the, the references, uh, you know, the general and, the, and we're going to shoot the ray at it and, and, and all this other stuff, the doctors, you know, all, all, all that. 
that really was input from Joe because he just had a million, you know, and I want to, I want to cast the guys in it who were in the real movie, you know, we mm-hmm. put them in and that, and that's really Joe all the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I imagine it must've been fun to create a, a sort of a Mark fifties movie. That's almost the real thing. It's, it's just on this side of parody, I guess. Yeah, it was a, it was a lot of fun. A lot of fun. And, uh, you know, and, and shooting black and white and doing all that stuff. I mean, yeah, it really was fun. Mm-hmm. So the characters in the movie and, and matinee itself, um, I think the heart and soul of the film, that's uh, John Goodman or his character, the, the yeah. Lawrence Woolsey character. Um, and again, that draws a lot of inspiration from the 50s, um, from, from the William Castle type of producer. So was that already in place when you uh, came on board for the script or? It was not. Um, there had been, I think, two writers. I think uh, Jericho Stone came up with the initial idea for let's make a movie about kids at a Saturday horror movie matinee. And then Ed Naha uh, came on and did um, uh, probably several drafts. So what Joe and Mike gave me to read was just the most recent draft by Ed. Um, mm-hmm. And that was the only thing that, that I saw, you know, going into it. And I just, I, I thought it was a lovely script. You know, it, it was a very nice script about kids go to a Saturday horror movie matinee. And it had the idea of Mant and that stuff. Um, it did not yet have the, the John Goodman character or the Cuban Missile Crisis or any of that stuff. Um, and I, we had been talking a lot about William Castle when we were working on Gremlins 2, um, because Joe wanted, Joe was talking about, could there be some kind of fourth wall gag in Gremlins 2, um, which there ended up being with the thing where the film appears to break and have Paul Bartel and Hulk Hogan and all that stuff. Um, but he pointed out that, because uh, we talked about William Castle, he said, well, William Castle was opening movies in just a few theaters and he could actually go around and, you know, do the tingler or, you know, whatever the, the, the gag was. We can't do that because we're opening in too many theaters. Uh, but William Castle, you know, that whole thing sort of stuck in my mind mm-hmm. so that when we started talking about matinee and they said, well, it needs another layer of, you know, of stuff going on other than the kids going to the movie. And, and, and I don't want to, claim credit for any particular idea because it was so collaborative and my memory is of you know working with these guys and i i think it was very much a shared you know brainstorming uh but basically what we said was well what if you put a character like william castle in, and what if he is opening a movie you know during the cuban missile crisis and it's in florida because i vividly i didn't grow up in florida i grew up in in new york but I vividly remember being 10 years old during the Cuban Missile Crisis. That was something I never forgot. So, mm-hmm. you know, that got added in there. Mm-hmm. We all remembered fallout shelters and getting under the desk and all that atomic bomb stuff. You know? Oh, you had those drills uh, like you see in the movie? We had the drills, yeah. Oh, okay. And, and, and in fact, um, the, one of the things taken from real life in, in matinee when uh, Lisa Jacobs' character, the sort of beatnik girl, mm-hmm. makes the speech about this is pointless because here's, here's how you're really going to die of radiation mm-hmm. and all that stuff, which you know, to me is a wonderful speech. And I get to say it's a wonderful speech because I didn't really write it. I remembered it because when I was in school at, at 10 years old, 
and we were having those drills getting under the desk, there was this one girl who got up and said exactly that. She said, <laughs> this is nuts. You know, you're going to be... You're going to horrible radiation. And she described the whole thing, and we were all, oh, my God, we're all going to die. So that went right into the movie. I mean, I never forgot that, her saying that. It's a very nice contrast to the, the horror that plays out on screen versus the real-life horror that is uh, happening in the world. Yeah, once we got that idea of real danger as opposed to fake horror movie, going to a horror movie, that fear, um, that sort of rehearsal of fear, or that kind of um, ritual of defense against fear, you know, however you want to talk about that psychologically, it, it became, to some extent, a movie about that, about real and fake danger and the, and the possibility of confusing the two of them. And that's really what we played on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think horror movies in general, not just the ones from the 50s or 60s, they're a way to confront your fear without, you know, actually having to live through it. And it's always in a very contained manner. I mean, like with the movies like Mant and, and the real movies like Tarantula and everything, um, yeah. you sort of you have the idea of um, the atomic bomb um, or a nuclear like devastation and mutation and everything, radiation poisoning, but it's told in a way that it's very, uh, let's say very, you can come to terms with it because it's usually just a monster and you can kill it or you can sort of deal with it. Yeah, and, and, and at a certain point it's gonna be over and the lights are gonna go up and you're gonna be fine. Mm. And I, I think we are, we are thrilled when somebody makes a monster movie and we go see the monster movie and we know, and they know that the lights are going to go up and we're scared anyway. Mm -hmm. And it's so effective that we're scared in spite of all that. And I think that's the genius of something like get out or Mulholland drive or some of these other things where I have really been, ah, you know, <laughs> yeah. even, even, even watching that at home, you know, even streaming that, you're in your nice living room and you're still frightened. I mean, that's, mm -hmm. that's an achievement. That's, that's, that's good work right there, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I had this experience with a couple of ghost movies, like The Ring, for example, and, you know, I just couldn't, yeah. turn, I couldn't turn off the light that night because, yeah. well, you know, it's, it, it became so real. It touched upon something, some sort of fear, and it's, it's no use telling yourself that, well, okay, it's, it's all fake and it's a movie. Yeah, um, good luck. And that's, that's good work, yeah. Yeah. So it's, it, 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 you actually have a speech uh, in the movie where John Goodman, you actually have two speeches in the movie where John Goodman talks about that, um, where he talks about the first horror movie, um, the caveman who uh, drew yeah. the, the, the mammoth. And then at some later point, he talks to the patrons who work in the, um, the, the people who work in the theater, um, where he prepares them and says, well, they live through that and their heart can't take yeah. it any longer. And then they say, oh my God, it's, it's over. Can I see it again? The, the kind yeah. of catharsis. Yeah. Yeah, I like this. Yeah, thank you. I, I like those speeches. They're fun to do. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think they capture the, the, the soul of that um, movie-going experience very much. Thank you. So interesting about... Um, the, the Lawrence Woolsey character and the, um, what's the boy's name, Eugene. Yeah. I, I think there's this, the kind of father and son relationship that they have. Yeah. 
there, there is. And, and, and of course, we're playing on the fact that the, the kid's father is away and he doesn't know what's happening to him. And it's, uh, you know, that's, that's part of the tension there. So yeah, there's a, there's a, in, you know, in, in, in this nutty way, because the guy is sort of, you know, three fifths con man, but he's, but he's still, he's still got some human instinct toward the kid, which is nice. Mm-hmm. And I think it ties in with that moment where the kid says that the people on screen are sort of his friends, people like Vincent Price, they're my friends. Yeah. Um, because he doesn't really have too many real friends because he's moving so much. Yeah. So, so is that your experience or is that Joe Dante's experience or is that just something that is sort of distilled into, you know, a character that is, is, is a stand-in for every one of us? I think, I think it's more the stand-in thing. I don't, I don't know a whole lot about um, Joe's childhood and he would be the one to ask. Uh, my childhood was, you know, was, was stable. We didn't move and I, you know, I went to school and I had friends and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we were just trying to imagine that, you know, military brat thing where you move around, but I don't know. And I, I, I think actually that's just because we said, well, why are they in Key West? Well, you know, why is the father not there? Well, he's in the Navy. It's when they, you know, we, we came up with the fact that there was that blockade ship. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that became the kid's background, but it wasn't mine. I don't think it was Joe's at all, but you could, you could ask Joe that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess I'm asking because so much of the movie feels so personal. Um, and I know that Joe Dante has talked about how almost autobiographical the film is. Um, so, um, yeah, it, it, I, I, I think a lot of aspects of it are for him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah. And then, and then some aspects for me, because as I say, the fallout shelter stuff, I mean, I really do remember being so spooked at that age about the bomb And you would, um, you would, we would drive around. We'd be in the, <clears throat> in the car with my family and driving around where we lived. And there would be these uh, fallout shelter lots. It was like a Christmas tree lot, uh, but they were selling fallout shelters and they were all these, you know, concrete cylinders and they'd be sitting there and painted in different colors. So it's like, you know, what would you like an orange one? Would you like a blue one? <laughs> and you were supposed to buy this thing have it driven to your house, dig a hole in the backyard and sink this concrete cylinder into it. And that was your fallout shelter. And they were impossibly small. I mean, you could not have gone through two days in this thing. And, you know, there were people who, who believed in doing that. There were people who thought that, would, that was going to save their lives. And it was madness. And as a 10-year-old, you know, you're terrified. Mm. But did you did you actually comprehend what was going on there, or was that just a sort of a oh, feeling yeah, because that because I was I, I was a precocious kid mm-hmm. who read the newspaper, you know, and 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 there were people in the newspaper saying, you know, well, what, what do you think you're going to live in this thing? So it was, I mean, it it, it was seeing the fallout shelters, but on top of that comprehending the futility of it mm-hmm. and the fact that this this was just underscoring the fact that we were all going to get blown up and of course we didn't but uh you know people in japan had so you know what can you say it was awful mm-hmm. so so yeah so that aspect of it uh you know of the kids going through that it was certainly personal for me and i think the movie stuff was especially personal for joe mm-hmm. You already mentioned the girl who um, 
who tells everyone what's going to happen to them if, if yeah. there's an actual nuclear war. Um, and I noticed that the, there are two female characters uh, in the script and they're almost, these two are the grown-ups in this world. It's the girl who um, seems to know more about um, what's going on in the world than some of the adults do. Um, and there's the, the girlfriend of, of John Goodman, who again is, um, she sees through all of his, his bullshit and all of his showmanship, I guess. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the long suffering <laughs> Kathy Moriarty. I think she's, I, I think the two of them are, you know, are, are, are wonderful. In it. I, you know, I very much admire what they, what they did in that picture. But was that something you were going for? That the, that the women are particularly aware of um, the, the reality of the situation? Huh, not consciously. But, okay. but you make a very good point. You're right. <laughs> yeah, because Woolsey himself, I mean, he's, he's more or less a kid. Um, he's, at, at one point, he actually tells the kid that, well, we grown-ups um, make things up as we go along yeah. as well. So he's, he's sort of a kid. and uh, he's, he's sort of a kid. And also, there's another, there's another element to him that, that I should just mention here, which is that um, to a large extent, he's, he's William Castle. But... There is also, as Joe pointed out, William Castle was a, was a B-movie maker, but he, he, he worked in Hollywood. He worked for the studios. Um, and Woolsey seems to be more one of these guys who is outside of Hollywood. Mm -hmm. uh, and Joe sent me a book, and I don't know if he mentioned this to you or if you're familiar with it, but there's a book called A Youth in Babylon mm -hmm. by a guy named Dave Friedman. Do you mm -hmm. know about this? I've heard about it, but no, I haven't read it. Really, really worth reading if you get if you can get a hold of it if you get mm -hmm. the chance. Joe sent it to me when we were working on uh, matinee, and it is about Friedman. Uh, you know, it's a memoir, and it's Friedman and these other guys who were completely outside of Hollywood. They came not from show business; they came from the world of carnivals. Mm -hmm. You know, they had been they had been traveling with carnivals in the Midwest and the South in America. And they started, you know, they made these movies or they got hold of these movies and they literally were driving around with 35 millimeter prints in the trunk of the car and going into small towns and for while, you know, renting out a movie theater mm -hmm. and advertising these things and showing them. And it was things like Mom and Dad, which was this very hokey, um, you know, sort of sex education, <laughs> cautionary tale movie that was billed as being very racy. and um, and there's a thing in that book where Friedman says, you know, we would we would go through the South and we would we would go into a town and rent a theater and put on mom and dad. And he said sometimes guys from the Knights of Columbus would come down or some organization, you know, for decency would come down and they'd pick at the movie theater and say, don't go see this sinful movie. And then you'd really sell out the theater because everyone wanted to see it. And he said, if we went to a town and nobody showed up to picket it, I'd hire a few guys to come picket it. And that's exactly where the John Sales and Dick Miller characters in Matinee come from, mm -hmm. uh, from that anecdote. And so, the, you know, that book and those guys very much also inform the John Goodman character. A part, that's the part other than William Castle. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, he's a kid, and, but he's also very much a carny. He's a, you know, he's a traveling carnival guy mm -hmm. uh, who's somehow got one foot in the movie business. And that's, you know, 
Mm-hmm. That's thanks to that, that, that book and those people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. A scandal is always free advertising. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I was um, I'm reminded of an anecdote. My uh, religious education teacher back in high school told me when he went to see Life of Brian, the Monty Python movie. I don't know if you're yeah. familiar with that. Um, they had nuns picketing um, you know, everybody on the street and telling them not to go see that movie because, you know, you go straight to hell if you go see that movie because it makes fun of religion. And so obviously, I mean, everybody wanted to see the movie. I mean, that's, that's a given if you have nuns telling yeah. you not to do something. Yeah, you, just, you can't beat it. That's great. <laughs> Yeah, always. Uh, I I also thought that um, the the Woolsey character is sort of a, a composite of a lot of different producers. I think Roger Corman also plays into that. Well, sure. Uh, with with the type yeah. of movie he he makes. Um, yeah, that's a good point because um, you know Joe had worked for Roger mm. uh, and 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 Mike had and. Um, there's a, you know, there, there, there's kind of a group of people in Hollywood uh, who, uh, you know, who worked for Roger at AIP or New World or wherever, and who sort of, you know, survived uh, and, and learned from uh, that experience of dealing with him. Uh, and they never get over it. I mean, it's just one of these things that, you know, because he, he, you know, he's this, uh, this great, crazy character, you know, that mm. they all worked for. Uh, the, and the, the 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 book about him, uh, I don't know if you've seen the the Roger Corman book. Um, mm-hmm. Is is a sort of oral history of of, of, of people working for him. Do you, have, have you seen that? Mm-hmm. Uh, something like how I made a hundred movies and yeah, never, I lost, never a lost a dime. <laughs> yeah, I've read it. Yeah, and so and so all these people I knew in L.A. Um, Jonathan Kaplan and Alan Arkish, John Davison, Joe and Mike, all these people are interviewed in there. And um, yeah, it, it gives you a sense of Roger that uh, I, I think you're right. I think it does come through in, in, uh, in Woolsey. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- I think what uh, connects the two also is the fact that Lawrence Woolsey very much loves what he's doing. You, you get yeah. the feeling that it's so much fun for him. He's, he, he may be a showman and he's sort of a like a doing playing tricks and, on everybody and stuff like that. Um, but he's not fake. He, he loves what he's doing. Absolutely right. Yeah. This connection between the, the, the horror of the screen and the horror that plays on real life, um, that's sort of the theme of the movie. Um, I, was, I was looking at, at your other work and I was sort of trying to find an overall theme um, that sort of connects all of that. You see there's the literature student in me that's coming through. <laughs> um, so I was thinking that the, the loss of innocence would be something that uh, plays into a lot of your work. Would you agree? Uh, sure. I mean, I think that's certainly true of a couple movies that um, Tim Hunter and I did, uh, mm-hmm. you know, Over the Edge and Tex, in, in, in different ways. You know, they're both these two different pictures with, uh, with Matt Dillon um, and Jonathan Kaplan directed Over the Edge and then Tim mm-hmm. Hunter directed text, uh, but they're, yeah, they're very much about that for the kids. I mean, the kids, the kids, the kids in Over the Edge, if they, if they have any innocence going into it, you know, get, <laughs> get, uh, get divested of it pretty quickly by the, you know, by the, by the second or third act of that picture. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, Carl in, in Over the Edge, he's basically the, because he's our stand-in in a way, he's a good kid and he sort of uh, gets drawn into this whole mess and then the wrong crowd maybe, or just the, the frustration of living in that particular town, all of that. Yeah. So I guess there's the, the, the loss of innocence that plays into that. For sure, yep. And I noticed that you, because you made another movie with Joe Dante that um, very much um, connects with Matinee, it's, it's Runaway Daughters. Um, oh, yeah. Because again, that's it's almost the same period. And it also has, you have that movie at the beginning, I Was a Teenage Werewolf, and you have a, right. a real life incident, um, the Sputnik launch um, that, yeah. that people are talking about. Did that grow out of, of Matinee? Was that somehow connected? You know, what, what happened with that was that, um, I'm sure you probably know this, it's a series of, it's from a series of uh, cable TV uh, remakes of um, uh, AIP pictures. Mm -hmm. You know this, that um, I guess it was Showtime had a series where they uh, had well-known directors come in and... Um, and do remakes of uh, AIP things like, uh, I think they did I Was a Teenage Werewolf and they did, um, you know, all the, all, all the teenage movies and, and, and horror movies and stuff that AIP had done. Again, going back to Roger Corman. Uh, and I think uh, Jonathan Kaplan did one, Mary Lambert did one, uh, Joe did this one and, and so forth. So it's, it, it's very much, a, you know, a, a, an affectionate remake of this AIP thing. Uh, and so Joe sent me a cassette of the original movie, which had been shot in five days, uh, <laughs> which was how, how a lot of things. It, it happened uh, that Joe and Mike at that time had this wonderful uh, assistant, this woman, uh, you know, working and, and running their business and stuff, Betty Moss, who had worked at AIP at that time. And I said, God, did they really make those movies in five days? And she said, yeah, it was great. We had a rap party every Friday. <laughs> so, uh, so, and I think we made ours in 12 days. I mean, I think it was, it was almost as fast and cheap as an AIP picture. And they were just somewhere. I, I, I visited one day and they were just somewhere way the hell out in the North San Fernando Valley shooting this thing. And I think it was, um, it, you know, it was maybe a year after matinee. Uh, you know, very close on the heels of it. Uh, I was traveling and Joe called up and said, you, you know, do you want to get involved in this thing? It's, it's, it's very cheap and it doesn't pay anything, but, you know, but we'll have fun. And I said, great. And I think it was, I think it was kind of a, of a way for us to, to sort of calm down from the whole matinee thing, which had been such a roller coaster with the, um, with the financing and the studio and all this stuff that you go through. And this was just something we knew we could do cheaply and quickly and uh you know and, and and not have to worry all the time and it was it really was very nice to get back together and do that and you know and do it without all the um you know studio neurosis it was it was a nice mm -hmm. thing to do mm -hmm. and at some points it feels like it's a companion piece um yeah it yeah it very much is mm. it is it was so soon afterward but we just wanted to uh you know, what, 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 what if we did this with that? You know, because matinee was one of those things like, we went through this also on Over the Edge where you never quite know if, if you've 
really raise the money to make the movie mm -hmm. until you're making the movie and it's nerve wracking. And, and we didn't have any of that with this one because it was, it was just, you know, cheap and showtime. Great. Go, you know, do it. Mm -hmm. I see. So matinee was much more of a struggle, I guess. Yeah, it was as, as, as these things often are, you know, mm -hmm. and I, I think, Uh, you know, and, and I, I have been out of Hollywood for a while now, but um, my memory of it, my experience of it is that uh, unless you're making a sequel for a studio and everyone involved is very, as they used to say, bankable, unless it's that, uh, there is always this question of, you know, wh whether you have the money and whether you have distribution and whether you're really making this movie. And Very often the answer is no, <laughs> you're not making it. <laughs> and then on rare occasion you are, you know. Yeah, unfortunately it's such a tough business and a lot of good projects um, are never made. I, I read that you and, and Joe Dante actually had a, another project that you didn't really manage to get off the ground, uh, the uh, Termite Terrace. Yeah, 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 that was, that was, that was kind of, that was kind of a heartbreaker because we, We worked on it a long time. We, we thought we had a pretty good script. Um, and uh, it was just something that would, would have to have been done at Warner Brothers um, because they owned the cartoon characters. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that, that uh, you know, it was a movie about the Looney Tunes animators. And mm -hmm. Warner Brothers, of course, owns those characters. So normally... You know, you develop something at, at a certain studio and at some point, if they say no, you say, okay, well, we'll take it across the street. And you go to the other studios. Mm -hmm. In this case, you didn't do that. So mm -hmm. you know, we'd make a movie. Uh, what would the story have been of, of Termite Terrace? Well, Termite Terrace was just kind of, um, it's a fictionalized story about Chuck Jones and Tex Avery and Bob Clampett and these guys making mm -hmm. Looney Tunes at Warner Brothers and the old Warner Hollywood lot, not Burbank, but the, the one in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. um, and they had, they had a building where they, you know, where they animated and did, did these cartoons that they called Termite Terrace. It was this old, you know, falling down wooden building. And, um, and it, it was just kind of fictionalized, but those guys and their lives making cartoons in Hollywood in the 30s and 40s. Mm -hmm. It's very unfortunate that that one didn't get made. Yeah, I, I and I think um, you know what they what they say in LA is that everybody's got one of those that you know the the, the picture that got away that they wish they'd been able to do, mm -hmm. and uh, I think that that I, I have a few actually, <laughs> <laughs> but that's that's the number one. Yeah. Okay. Uh, which other projects did you have that uh, you would really have wanted to make? Oh, I did, you know, I did an adaptation of a German uh, comedy called To Air is Human for, uh, for Ben Stiller's company that we, you know, we thought was pretty good, but we never quite got there. Um, you know, probably a couple others. I mean, you, you, you work on a lot of stuff and, and you know, I, I, I mean, now I'm, now I'm pretty old and it, and it, it all seems less uh, tragic and urgent and everything, but At the time you're working on things, you get very involved in them and very invested. And, uh, uh, you know, you, at a certain point you realize that, um, you know, a, a, a minority of the things that you work on will be realized. And that's, that's, that's how that business is. Mm -hmm.
so was that why you why you um, sort of left Hollywood after a while? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think, and, you know, and, and I'm, 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 I'm still a little bit in it because Tim Hunter and I have been working on an idea for a, a TV mm. thing. But, um, uh, but by and large, yeah, I, I had wanted to write fiction for a long time. Uh, and it also seemed like, uh, I, you know, in, in Hollywood, you get, uh, you get old at a very young age. <laughs> you know, it's like, I don't know, you know, obviously a lot of people keep working and doing good work after they're 40, but it's, it gets harder. Mm. Um, and, uh, and, you know, and it's frustrating when you work on things like Termite Terrace and they don't happen and, and you know, a few other things. And uh, there was a point where I said, uh, you know, boy, if I'm, you know, if I'm going to writing fiction is a whole other thing to learn how to do. And if I'm going to try and learn that and do it, uh, I better do it before I get really old and, you know, lose my <laughs> brains. So that was it. Mm -hmm. I see. Yeah. And as a, as a novelist, you're more in control of um, the, the, the finished product. Whereas as a screenwriter, you're sort of at the mercy of um, the, the producers and the directors and everybody else who has a say in um, how to translate it to the screen. Right. Yeah. And, you know, and at a certain point I sort of a, a little bit of a light bulb went on for me about screenwriting where I, I realized that, the way that I could think about it um, comfortably and understand it was that it was the, the, the closest analogy to it uh, was being a, a movie soundtrack composer, which, which sounds a little weird because the composer is not involved in, in story or any of that. But I said, you know, really your job here is you know, you are not the author, the director is really the author. And like the composer, you are just supplying everything you can come up with to the director and the director is choosing what to use and it is the director's uh, story to tell. And, mm -hmm. and you, know, you can come up with ideas and dialogue and let's have this character, all this other stuff, but it's the director's decision the same way that the composers, you know, can come up with music cues all day but it's up to the director and you are just, you know, working for hire and uh, trying to help this person make a movie. Mm -hmm. And once I understood it in that way, uh, it, it, it made a lot more sense to me what, what I was doing for a living, you know? Mm -hmm. Also, I really love movie music. So <laughs> you know, it gave me something to look up to, you know, I started thinking, Oh, Jerry Goldsmith, you know, that, that, these are the, that's a great thing to do, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's true. And, and I think it, I think that was true of me, and I I would not go around saying that that's true of people. I mean, we know um, my wife and I know uh, David and Janet Peoples, you know, mm -hmm. who wrote Monkeys and stuff. To me, those are really those are screenwriters who are really literary creators, mm -hmm. and uh, and you know, and I I I think what they are doing is much more analogous to writing novels because they really are, you know, doing the literary work in the movies. Mm -hmm. So I'm not saying they're like Sandra. I'm saying I was like a Sandra. Mm -hmm. I see. Did you set out to become a screenwriter or did you have some other career in mind before that? Uh, I wanted to do any sort of writing I could do for a living. Uh, mm -hmm. I did a lot of magazine journalism. 
um, and I wanted to write fiction, I ended up uh, doing that now. But um, no, you know, I, 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 and I had always loved movies, but I had not thought of, of writing for them. Uh, and I went to college and my, the, the guy teaching the film classes where I went to college was Tim Hunter. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, had, he had been to Harvard, he had been to the AFI. He was teaching film history. Um, and so I took all these, these classes that Tim was teaching, um, Westerns and Howard Hawks and John Ford and, and mm-hmm. Hitchcock and film noir and all this stuff. This really sort of mini crash course, you know, film history education. And, uh, and Tim at some point said to me, you know, we should try writing together. And we started writing, you know, what ended up being over the edge. So, um, uh, I really just kind of stumbled into it, uh, through knowing Tim and, and Tim was another guy who had had, uh, like Joe, you know, had had this, this, um, you know, this life through childhood and, and, uh, and college of total immersion and, uh, in movies and, and knowledge of movies, you know, and mm-hmm. again, another, you know, another real scholar of this stuff. Mm-hmm. I see. And Over the Edge was, was your first movie then um, yes. that you wrote with Tim. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was his idea. Mm-hmm. He, he, based on a, a newspaper story that he saw about what was actually happening. Uh, we were in Santa Cruz and this stuff was going on in Foster City, California, near San Francisco. And we started going up there and interviewing the kids and then developed the story from that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I read that Kurt Cobain um, said at one point that the movie defined his entire personality. Did, did you hear it about that? It was very strange. Yeah, there, and there's a documentary about him that has clips of Over the Edge in it and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I, I was always sort of uh, surprised and kind of and touched by that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it, it, it captures some a, a kind of feeling of, um, well, let's call it the American nowhere uh, I guess the, yeah. <laughs> this, this kind of well anonymous, said, yeah. anonymous suburb. Um, yep. And I, I, I've seen that in a, in a couple of, of people's biographies where they say, well, I grew up in so-and-so and the way they describe it, that's exactly the, the town of over the edge. Um, yeah. say, well, there's nothing to do there. There's just, you, you go crazy if, if you grow up there. Yeah. There was nothing to do. And um you know, and, and uh, you know, Foster City, the, the place where the stuff happened that, that it's very loosely based on looks like that. And then when we realized that the child labor laws in California would make it impossible to make a movie with 14-year-olds in California because it would just be too expensive, mm-hmm. we started looking and, uh, boy, you could have made it all over, all over America. I mean... It, you know, everywhere you went, there were developments that looked like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I traveled through America at, at one point um, through Minnesota um, because I, w- I was in an exchange program with the University of mm-hmm. Minnesota. So I, I traveled around uh, quite a little bit and I was surprised at all these little towns and all these suburbs and all these, you know, everything sort of looks alike there. And, and, yeah. and, and, and they all seem so empty. That's that's yeah. what I was so, I found so amazing that um, you didn't really see people on the streets or or you know people going about their business or anything. They they seemed like ghost towns in a way. There's a wonderful novel 
that you may have read, but, but if not, I recommend it highly uh, by Stanley Elkin called The Franchiser, mm -hmm. uh, which is about that. Mm -hmm. And I won't, I won't go into it because I, I, I don't, I won't take your time. But if you get a chance, uh, it's a, it's a wonderful book. And I, I think you described a, a little bit of that America in, in your novel too, right? Oh in yeah. The, the enthusiast. Yeah. Yeah. He's running around. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Certainly, certainly where he grows up in that book in, in, uh, in San Bernardino County, it looks like that. It's, mm -hmm. it's funny because uh, San Bernardino County is not a big setting in that one because he's, you know, he's itinerant and he's going around and there's 7-Elevens and stuff. And it's, it's what you're talking about. But um, the thing I'm writing now is set almost, in, it starts in Germany, but the rest of it is set in San Bernardino County once again, which is a place I don't know that well, but I've, I've been there. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's about... A hundred years ago, there were these sort of um, German expressionist art and nature freaks who came from Germany to Southern California and sort of the California hippie thing starts with them. Mm -hmm. uh, this is like 1914. Uh, and I have them coming to that same area, Redland, San Bernardino County. So, um, you know, somehow I, 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 I'm there again. Mm-hmm. You seem like you're drawn to these kinds of places. Yeah, I think so. I think so. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Matinee is, is sort of a, I mean, Key West, that's a very specific place, but still it could be anywhere. Um, it, it's just a town where you have a movie, where, uh, where you have a movie theater um, with a, a, a huge uh, movie opening there. Right. Ex ex except that it's, and, and the one catch there is that it's so close to Cuba. Mm -hmm. Yeah, true. And so you had the blockade and, you know, and all this stuff was, was going on there. Mm -hmm. I was wondering while I was looking at, at um, the, the other stuff that you've done, that you, um, you wrote a draft of Tron. Yeah. Uh, but, but you're not credited in the movie? No, it was, um, it, it was a weird thing. I, I, I was sort of, uh, we were kind of hanging around at Disney because Tim and I had done techs at Disney. Mm -hmm. And then... Um, They were getting ready to make Tron, and which at the time was, uh, you know, this very advanced uh, computer effects picture. They were they were really doing new stuff, and and I don't I, I don't know that much about the technical stuff, but apparently it was uh, this this very difficult, expensive, painstaking kind of process they were using, um, and. So they were very close to shooting and the studio came to me and said, um, look, this is about to go and we're not really happy with uh, all the dialogue and do you want to do a production dialogue polish? And I said, okay. And I was hired. The deal was that you couldn't, that, that the sequences were completely locked. The mm -hmm. story was locked, but it was also scene by scene It has to be these actors in this setting and this is what happened. <laughs> mm -hmm. You cannot change a single thing about that. This is, this is, this is done. All you can do, it's, it's like going through a comic book and changing only the speech balloons. All you can do is revise the dialogue. And I said, got it. And so I 
stayed up for, you know, 10 days or two weeks or something. And I just, you know, worked day and night. I was young and, um, and changed, and changed a bunch of the dialogue and a bunch of stuff I used, um, I, I wrote was used in the movie. Uh, and I get a special thanks credit mm-hmm. uh, and I was in it up through the table readings, um, and, you know, and making changes. Uh, and they, 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 they used a nice amount of, of, of what I had done. Uh, and I think under the Writers Guild rules, there was no way I would ever have gotten a credit because the rules lean heavily towards story. And mm-hmm. uh, back in the, I guess in the 30s and 40s, there used to be this other credit called additional dialogue. But that had been gone for a long time by the time mm-hmm. I worked on it. So really there was no there was no reason I would have had a credit on it, but I, yeah, I did work on it. Mm-hmm. I see. Yeah. I found this, the script that you wrote uh, on the internet. It's actually um, on one of the pages where you can find screenplays to movies. Um, and it says fourth draft, but it doesn't have any of the other drafts. So it's um, impossible to compare with uh, what's come before that. I just noticed that it's very close to um, the actual movie. Uh, yeah. Uh, I, um, Hmm. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how you would find the other people's drafts, but mm. uh, yeah. Yeah. I remember, I remember doing it and, um, and I like those people. I liked uh, Steve Lisberger. I thought it was very nice. Mm-hmm. But the film is, 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 is sort of an anomaly in your, uh, in your other work, I think. Oh yeah, definitely. But you, you know, the, the, I, I was at that age and at that time in my life where, uh, you know, I was young and I had a lot of energy and people would ask you if you wanted to do stuff and, and you sort of, yeah, sure. You know, mm-hmm. sounds good. Why not? So, yeah. Sounds like fun. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would not do now, but I did then, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and I mean, it's nice to have a movie like Tron on your resume. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's just funny. <laughs> it's funny. It's a I mean, you, you want your life to have been colorful <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. and music, you know, and, and there it is, right? <laughs> yeah, you want to have stories to tell and everything. Exactly. So. Exactly, yeah. Well, going back to Matinee for, for a moment, um, because I said Tron is such a cult movie, and I guess Matinee is, it's almost a cult movie, but I, I think it didn't really have that kind of impact. Um, so I was wondering how you how you received the the whole reception of the movie. How you uh, sort of how much did you read the reviews? How much did you follow the um, like the life of the movie that that kind of thing? I I will tell you how I feel about this, and this is you know perhaps um, self serving, but it, it really is true. Um, well, the first thing to say is that back in the in 20 years ago, when there were uh, when you could go to video stores uh, and rent movies, we had a video store near us, you know, where we live here, and I would go there, and you know, it was probably VHS at that point. But everything I had worked on was in the cult section. <laughs> right and, was, and nowhere else but it was like cult movie number one number two number, and um which is fine mm-hmm. and the the other thing about this is that it and it takes you forever to learn this and i mean i'm i'm about to be 68 years old and it, and it took me a long time 
to, to, to understand this, but you do something and there's an initial response to it. Uh, and then 10 and 20 and 30 years go by and there is a completely different uh, estimation of that thing, mm-hmm. at least by some people. There is a very different understanding of what that was you were doing. And if you take it really seriously when you initially do something, you know, which, which you sort of can't help doing, uh, you know, but it can be quite painful. When Over the Edge came out, or sort of came out, because it was barely released, but when that movie uh, came out, the trade reviews, Variety and The Hollywood Reporter, were scathing. They were the worst reviews you ever saw in your life. They were vicious. And I read those reviews and I, you know, and I'm a boy, you know, I mean, I'm a young boy and I, and I, and I read these things and I said, geez, you know, my, it's over where I'm done. You know, I can't, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not going to work anymore. Um, you know, you, and, and, and I'm sitting at the magazine where I worked and I'm reading the trade papers. Oh my God. And, you know, a year later, uh, Joseph Papp, you know, it's, it's screens at the, at the, the, Joseph Papp's Public Theater in New York. And we get these great reviews in the New York Times and the Chicago Tribune and the Village Voice. And so all of a sudden, it's a good movie. And all of these things, places that give them bad reviews or say, what a dud or whatever, at the time, you know, years later, the Blu-ray comes out or the DVD, you know, whatever it is, or, or there's a revival screen or it's streaming somewhere. Now they write this thing saying, well, here's this great movie. You can see this weekend because it's streaming. And you say, great movie. You know, you were the people who panned this. But, you know, what? Mm-hmm. of course, it's a writer, you know, and, and years have gone by. But, you know, the, the estimation of these, these things changes over time. So you just kind of, you, you have to cool it, you know, and you have to, you have to get old. And when you get old, you say, oh, you know, this was, this was all right. <laughs> <laughs> in, our, in our fumbling way, you know, we kind of did something some people liked, but, but it takes, it takes a long time for people to catch up with it, mm. you know, through cable TV or stream or whatever. And, you know, and it takes a long time for the, uh, for the consensus, you know, for the critical consensus on something to change. So you have to, you have to wait and get old. Mm. Yeah. Not sometimes. So Sometimes it takes an entire generation until uh, something gets the appreciation it deserves. Um, yeah, and, and, and it happens. I won't say it happens to everyone because, uh, you know, a lot of things are, uh, you know, are, 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 are very good and people get it right away. And, you know, but there's a lot of things that, uh, that take time. Mm. So, yeah, matinee, I think, is, um, well, it's well regarded nowadays but um, now, yeah. still, <laughs> sure, now. <laughs> <laughs> even though uh, the, the reviews back then i think most of the reviews were good i mean i checked some of them and and like even the the reviewers who weren't totally wowed by it even they sort of found something to like and sort of acknowledged what you were doing and still said well this is a a, a charming film and um so i didn't really find any absolutely negative reviews so that's interesting no it it, it wasn't bad I, you know i remember and again you know you take these things you, you have to I, I i took this very seriously at the time i remember 
the day the movie opened, uh, my wife and I were at home, we were listening to the radio, and, and there's a, there was a review of it on public radio in the U.S., uh, and the reviewer gave, just gave it a lovely review and just said, uh, you know, this is great, and it really examines fear and what we go through, and it's, it's really about something, and it's very good, and he does such a nice job, Joe, and all this stuff. And then concludes the review by saying, unfortunately, Universal is dumping this picture. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and you're sitting there, you know, and I'm, I'm just, what, you know, what, 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 what are you going to think? I mean, you just, okay, good. That's on the radio. <laughs> you know, it's just, ah. So, and, and, you know, and at the time, it's a very big deal to you, you know. Yeah. Well, of course, it's something that you spent a lot of time and energy on. And yeah. it's sure. a, a project that takes, um, you know, it takes up so much time that becomes a very personal thing, I guess. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. I think the reviews of, of Gremlins 2 back then, they weren't that flattering either, right? Um, they were uh, very... Well, um, trying to remember. I think, I, actually, I think the reviews were on Gremlins 2 were, were, were good. Um, uh, New York Times liked it a lot. The Trades liked it a lot. I think even David Denby, like, I'm trying to remember. I, I, I think, oh, you know, there was a lovely piece about it in the New Yorker because it was about the fact that that and Dick Tracy were opening the same day and it drew an analogy between the different approaches of Disney and Warner Brothers mm -hmm. uh, 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 of the two movies, comparing the two movies as a Disney project and a Warner Brothers project relative to Mickey Mouse and Looney Tunes mm -hmm. and sort of making an analogy in the stylistic differences. And it was a lot, you know, it was this very nice appreciation of the picture. So that one, I think more people got right mm -hmm. away, um, even though it had the disadvantage in the U.S. of being released against Dick Tracy. I mm -hmm. think people appreciated it um, pretty early. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I always love the, it's like it has a very anarchic spirit to it. It's almost like a satire of the original movie. Um, yeah. It, it, it sort of it slaughters so many holy cows of, of horror cinema and everything. I mean, that's basically yeah. an anything goes movie. Um, yeah. And I've, I've rarely seen a movie that throws so many ideas and references and, and um, craziness into one package and I mean that's a part two that's not telling the same story again but it's sort of turning everything upside down and, and I, I was very happy doing that for Joe because uh, I love doing that sort of thing I was slow to catch on to how far he wanted to go in that direction mm -hmm. once I caught on I was thrilled because you know it, it was it was fun We had a lot of fun. I, I, and I always tell this, but uh, I'll, I'll repeat it. I remember the, the, when, I, when I finally understood what was happening was when I said to him, um, talking about the John Glover character, Clamp, mm -hmm. I said, boy, you know, I'm, I'm writing this and, and, and the guy is turning out to be very, the character is turning out to be very broad. And Joe just instantly said, how broad? Can we get Danny Kaye? <laughs> <laughs> 
now I see what we're doing here, you know. <laughs> yeah, when you watch a movie nowadays, the Clamp character is always a very interesting, uh, <laughs> very interesting <laughs> character. <laughs> Not so funny now. Nah. Not so much. It's it's yeah. it's almost like a time capsule of of um, how did people see Donald Trump back at the end of the eighties? <laughs> yeah, you know, and I read his book, working on that, and I said, you know, all this guy does is is, is borrow money and go bankrupt. Why 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 is he writing a book about this? <laughs> and bragging about it too? <laughs> yeah, bragging about it. But here we are, you know. Awful. <laughs> yeah, it's true. But yeah, you look at, at the Clamp character and you're like, yeah, of course. I mean, he's a caricature, but still he's so likable. He's, he's, um, yeah. Well, Glover's one. John Glover is wonderful. Mm. He's just, I just think he, he's, he's great in that. Mm. Very fun. And how did you get on board of, of Gremlins 2 in the first place? Uh, Jonathan Kaplan, um, whom I mentioned earlier, who, who wonderful, you know, mm -hmm. director, and he directed Over the Edge, and he went on and did The Accused and all this, all this great stuff, and then a lot of very good television. Um, he was friends with Joe. Uh, I think th that was the Roger Corman connection once again. Mm -hmm. uh, they both worked for Roger, and he ran into Joe and. Uh, Joe said, you know, we, we, we haven't yet come up with a suitable script for this sequel. And Jonathan said, well, you know, why don't you call Charlie? So, um, so they called me and uh, uh, they, they told me that, um, Mike told me that they were looking for, to get out of the small town setting, to do something in a big city, but you can't have these puppets running down the street in New York because it's too expensive. So you have to contain it somehow. Mm -hmm. And he said, and we, and we want to see some variations on the monsters. So um, I came back to them and said, well, what about the smart office building? And what about a genetics lab so that you get the mutations? Um, and then the two, and he and Joe then instantly started, you know, running with it and sort of saying, Oh, Donald Trump, Ted Turner, cable TV, all this stuff that, you know, that they mm. added into it. And then the three of us just sort of, you know, j just kind of jammed and, and came up with the thing. Mm -hmm. I see. Uh, was that something where the, the studio was kind of uncomfortable with the direction the project was going? Um, I, th I think they would have been, except that they had made a lot of money on part one and they, okay. just, they just wanted to make money again. So they're, yeah, great. You know, Joe wants to do it, you know, fine. Okay. So they were, uh, you know, we went in and pitched it to them. And yeah, I think, I think on any, uh, if it had been an original, I think they would have said, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> and on this, they said, great, go to work. <laughs> you need a new computer we'll send you a new computer so they were you know they were very nice they were happy mm -hmm. because i mean that is a quality that many joe dante movies have it's he's it's, it's almost subversive in a way like i said yeah. it's, it's 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 like a satire of the first film he's almost destroying the whole gremlins legacy with the film because he's making fun of it or you too are making fun of it um mm -hmm. and i i always imagine that well i don't know people will be very nervous about doing such a film Well, he, you know, I, I, I think he is just enormously talented and 
clever and sneaky and he gets a lot of things, a lot of ideas into movies uh, that, that other, other directors might not. So mm-hmm. yeah, I, I think Joe's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Did you have any, any other uh, films except for a termite terrace that you were planning to do that um, sort of didn't come to fruition? Uh, with Joe? Yeah. Um, no, I, you know, I worked a little bit on, you know, some other things they were thinking of doing, but, um, uh, you know, nothing, nothing, nothing that was, nothing that was a big deal. Mm. Just because I was curious that um, you, you sort of had this time frame where you collaborated on, on a couple of projects um, that sort of followed each other very quickly. Um, just, um, you know, that ended after a while, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. I, well, I, we worked, we worked on Termite Terrace for a long time. Um, so really there were several years there. Uh, and then, you know, I, I kind of decided to, to, to cool it and to try to write the book and stuff. And, and, uh, uh, so we, you know, and, and he had some, he had some other things he did. He did, uh, small soldiers after that and um, a bunch of stuff. So, mm-hmm. so when you look back at, at the films that you've done, um, how happy are you with, with how everything turned out? Oh, very, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, I, you know, because I never, um, I, 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 I'm happy because people uh, who seem smart to me uh, have liked them. Mm-hmm. and have figured them out uh, and, and have seen something good in there. And I never could have expected um, to make that many movies because it's very hard. I never would have expected to get so much out of collaborating with people, um, you know, because as, as a writer and not knowing about the movies, um, I didn't realize, uh, you know, what that relationship with, uh, with directors, you know, and, and actors was like. Um, and I got so much out of working with Tim and Jonathan and Joe and Mike and, you know, and a few other people developing things. Um, and I really, you know, and now there's like, I don't know if you've seen it, but there's this, uh, there's this Twitter account someone has called the Institute for Gremlins Two Studies. Mm-hmm. Have no. You seen it? <laughs> no. Very funny. It's very smart. We don't know who it is. We think it's someone in New York. We think it's someone who's an academic, uh, and he or she is writing, you know, this Twitter feed that is stuff about Gremlins Two that is like. Uh, it, it, it's as if Slavoj Zizek was writing about Gremlins too. Mm-hmm. It's this, uh, you know, leftist Marxist philosophical deconstruction of Gremlins too, and Gremlins too as a vehicle for social criticism. Mm-hmm. And it's funny and it's over-interpretive, but it's not completely over-interpretive. Like the guy is not, or, or gal is not wrong. I see something like that now. And I think, Okay, you know this this, <laughs> this 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 in its nutty way was worthwhile. Mm-hmm. 
you know, so I'm very happy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see. Things like that. Yeah, I mean, it means you're connected with people. It's, it's yeah, special. yeah, exactly, exactly. Hmm. And I mean, it, it's a movie that's 30 years old, so um, I think that means something that people are still going back to that and and mm-hmm. talking about it and and enjoying it. Yeah, yeah, it's very nice. Mm-hmm. I'm 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 pretty grateful. So one thing I, I forgot to ask about matinee, and I'll just have to tuck it in at the end because I've never seen it discussed anywhere. And I just wanted to ask you about the beautiful poetry <laughs> of Mr. <laughs> of Mr. Starkweather. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know we, I did, I did a draft and uh, I had the Kelly Martin character. I had her line about, well, did you know that Harvey writes poetry? And the, no, I didn't know that. And, um, you know, and we and we had our meeting at, at the studio. I think the executive was probably Lisa Henson or Lucy Fisher. I'm not sure, but whoever it was said, "Now, come on, we got to hear the poetry. If you're going to say he writes poetry, you know, you got it." So I got to write that. It was fun. Did you have anybody in mind when you wrote that? Any poet in mind? Um, yeah. Like, is it a parody no, of I, somebody? No, it really isn't because uh, I just wanted it to be, you know, what this dopey guy would have would have would have written if he, were, and it, you know, it's just it's just silly, but it's um, it was really fun to do. I mean, I read a lot of poetry, but I, I don't think I, I don't think it brings anyone to mind. Mm, it's the skin of my asphalt. I, yeah. <laughs> I think that's a great line. I was thinking that maybe uh, Allen Ginsberg and and Howell were somehow. Oh, that's interesting. Because it, it, it has such a beat poetry quality to it. Um, it is a little beat, yeah, a little bit. Um, but I keep Ginsburg's poem, America. Mm-hmm. You know, this it's a shorter poem. Mm-hmm. I, I, I've reread it many times in recent years because I, 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 re, I, re, I reread that poem and I think, well, you know, it's 1955 or something, but it's, it's all there. Mm-hmm. The, whole, the whole contemporary situation is there. Bye.